Greetings! Episode 8 of the NASPO Pulse, the podcast where we are monitoring issues in state procurement. We've got our fingers on the pulse. I'm your host, Kevin Miner, and 8 has me feeling great. Do you know why? Because not only do I have my colleague, Olivia Hook Fry, with me for another co interview. Hey, Kevin. But we're talking with the National Governors Association. More specifically, we're co-interviewing Tim Blute, Center for the Best Practices Director of the NGA. Olivia? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. We've been working with the National Governors Association since January of this year before the pandemic. We appreciate the work that we've done together to help our members, the CPOs, and the governors in combating the virus across the country. We are pleased to be able to join the National Governors Association in a member briefing for governors and their chiefs of staff to talk about the role of CPOs during the pandemic, as well as the role of our cooperative purchasing arm, ValuePoint. CPOs and their staff are on the front lines of fighting the virus by finding PPE and other critical items for their states. They're working in the state emergency operations centers around the clock, and we look forward to hearing from Tim about how CPOs and governors can work together to help their citizens across the country. We plan to continue this collaborative work after the pandemic and look forward to what the rest of the year will hold. Thank you, Olivia. And now, before we get started, a message from the 2020 NASPO president, George Shutter. George? All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Kevin. I am George Shutter. I'm the uh, president of the National Association of State Procurement Officials and, and also the, the chief procurement officer uh, for the District of Columbia. And I really do appreciate this opportunity to uh, to have dialogue, especially during the, the time of this, this pandemic. It's uh, very timely, actually, uh, that uh, the National Governance Association and the National Association of State Procurement Officials um, have penned in, in agreement uh, even before this, this pandemic. Uh, really looking, I think, particularly in this pandemic, the states of all, uh, the states and the district, we've all competed uh, with each other for requirements. Uh, in this emergency, uh, unlike many others, um, all of the jurisdictions uh, are, uh, it's, it's a unique uh, emergency because all of the jurisdictions are having the same needs for services and, uh, and supplies and, and PPE, uh, all facing the same issues at the same time. And so uh, we have, I think, done a, uh, done uh, a, a lot of good work with the network of, uh, of chief procurement officers out there uh, to, to align and, and coordinate as best as possible during this pandemic. There is so much here to learn, though, uh, on the, the structures and the mechanisms uh, to be able to fix the, the current contemporaneous needs right now. Uh, as well as the structural uh, needs in the in the future to to prevent this, uh, this really is uh, a perfect time for for broader cooperative uh, procurements where you can really balance uh, the public need with public buying power. Um, in the in the district, we're getting ready to uh, uh, to lead a, a nationwide PPE effort that is looking to to both leverage that buying power. Uh, for multi-jurisdictional needs, but also being able to work with our health professionals to make sure that uh, the products that we're bringing in uh, are appropriate for that use. So I, I absolutely appreciate the uh, the time in this podcast and look forward to working with our colleagues at the National Governors Association um, 
in this partnership to really uh, give some good focus on uh, the analytics solve problems and, and really look at, at best practices uh, for the district and the states going forward. Thanks, Kevin. Absolutely, George. And now let's take the pulse. Tim and Olivia, thank you so much for joining us on The Pulse today. Thanks for having us, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having us. Olivia, can you give just a brief overview of the partnership between NASPO and NGA? Sure. So thanks again, Tim, for being here. We really appreciate the partnership that we've built over the last several months. We began working with the NGA team back in January of this year before the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, So in a great collaboration, we had some different plans, I think, for this year before coronavirus uh, came about, but we've been really grateful for the resources that they've shared and been able to share some of our resources with their members. We've had conversations about the role of the CPO in finding PPE, um, working in the EOCs, and and working with governors to support them through response to the pandemic. Yeah, this is Tim. I would just add to that. Thanks to NASPO and thanks to all Olivia for a great way of framing that. I think we never imagined uh, that the partnership when we started out in January would be so critical. Uh, The Mm -hmm. response to the COVID Mm -hmm. outbreak and pandemic has necessitated a whole host of questions, Mm -hmm. new questions, somewhat novel questions around procurement, in particular PPE, testing supplies, and Having, uh, having you all as a partner has been just an incredible wealth of knowledge that we've been able to tap into as we work with our members and advise our members and their staff. So, Tim, you, you are the director for NGA Center for Best Practices. Can you give us just a little bit of your background and then maybe what your day-to-day looks like? Yeah, sure. So I, I've been with NGA actually for over six years now. Um, started out at NGA working um, on our cybersecurity team in the NGA Center for Best Practices and worked on that team and then led that team for a number of years. Uh, and then I branched out and developed a new portfolio of work um, that looked in some the intersection of states and emerging technologies. And then I started this role as a leader of the Center for Best Practices on an interim basis last fall um, and then started on a permanent basis this winter. And what that means in practice is that I um, help to coordinate and set the direction for our multiple policy teams. So, you know, we've got a, a whole host of experts who work across the full suite of state public mm-hmm. policy issues. Um, and then so when something arises, like coronavirus is a great example, you know, my role is to help to coordinate all of our responses and make sure that we're thinking about it from like our members think about these things from a whole of government approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job is essentially to make sure we're thinking about it from a whole of center approach, a whole of organization approach, because I also spend a good amount of time working within the organization to make sure that the efforts that we're undertaking with state officials are coordinated with our government relations colleagues who are doing advocacy on Capitol Hill or to the administration, right. and then certainly with our NGA partners community um, to make sure that we are uh, asking for input and assistance and sharing the work that we're doing to make sure we're leveraging those partnerships. So it's, it sounds like a lot of coordination there too, and you and you really can't miss any of the information. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. I mean, I think early on in the crisis, you know, one of the the heartening things has been just the overwhelming, and I say that positively, um, response we've seen mm-hmm. from other organizations out there. And so that's, again, everything from organizations that we've partnered with for 30 years to, you know, new groups that just popped up in the wake of the COVID crisis. And so initially, you know, one of the things we really were thinking long and hard about is how do we, how do we keep track of all these offers? Because what if there is a needle in a haystack, to your point, you know, we want to make sure we're not missing Early on, when we were talking about you know the PPEs or, or the ventilator shortage a couple months ago, you know what if somebody really does have a unique 
innovative um, solution to that problem. We, we really thought a lot about how do we make sure we don't lose that solution in our email just because mm-hmm. the the sort of the noise, there's so much noise and how do we not make sure we don't right. miss the signals? And so one of the things we've done is really tried, we stood up an internal process to make sure that we were genuinely looking at all of those offers, um, even if they were coming from someone we never knew before, we had never spoken to before, even if maybe they seemed a little off the wall, we wanted to make sure we were at least giving them a, a read, a thorough listening to. Um, and in many cases, you know, we found a lot of new partnerships that we didn't have before uh, that wow. we think have at least added to added to our knowledge base, if nothing more, and added to our understanding of the crisis. Tim, right. on that note, if I could add, you know, we've done some of the same. We feel like we're getting cold calls, cold emails constantly. Um, are there any resources that stand out to you as really helpful for the governors throughout the pandemic? I mean, the whole host of, of efforts we've received have been incredibly helpful. I mean, I think one of the things, a couple broad examples, you know, one, we've seen just the the philanthropic community sort of turn on a dime and focus its efforts on coronavirus. So we've seen, we've just had an incredible outpouring from folks that we've worked with for many years who say, you know, where do the governors need help? Where can we be most helpful? How can we help um, not just NGA, but how can we look across our whole suite of projects that we have ongoing and make sure we're responding to either the public health crisis or the mm-hmm. attending, you know, economic or human services or educational challenges that come along. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that's come up that's been really interesting in terms of resources we've received, there have been such an outpouring, in particular if we think about like the PPE and medical equipment, you know, so many organizations came up and very quickly had an idea about how to solve that. So whether that's that new technological innovation, you know, some of the folks who are going to come up with a new way to build a ventilator on the fly or to repurpose a ventilator or to repair old ones, up to individuals who are working around the clock to identify stockpiles of PPEs around the world. And one of the things that we've, you know, I think we thought about this for a long time is how can we be most helpful? You know, we're a public policy organization. We're not Mm -hmm. a multinational logistics and supply chain expertise. So what we realized is that because we were getting so many responses and because we were developing this incredibly broad and deep network of experts that we could essentially help to, to put all those folks together. So if you came to us and said that, you know, you've got the logistics capability to move PPE from point A to point B. Well, we want to make sure we marry you up with the person that says that they have that PP wherever they are. And then right. is there somebody out there who has a long history of being able to do that validating who can say, okay, so company A, that's a legitimate company. They've worked with government mm-hmm. before. We can trust their PP. And so each one of those steps along that really complicated um, delivery from you know finding the equipment to getting it where it needs to be, that requires a great deal of expertise. And I think one of the things that we've been really been able to do is bring all those experts together and make sure they're all talking to each other in order to effectuate the fastest um, and in some cases most um, nimble and responsive delivery of those products to our governors. One thing that we have, Tim, that we've historically done is we have um, regional council calls monthly where we meet on a regional basis, um, you know, a handful of states in that region. And we've kind of tabled those the last few months um, having weekly COVID-related calls. But we decided to pick those back up in June because we realized that some of this you know, obviously it's a pandemic, it's a national issue, it's a global issue, but mm-hmm. there are some nuances in terms of PPE need and other that is really regionally specific. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's why you've seen some of these regional groups form is a recognition that they, they may have a, a set of needs that is somewhat distinct from another region. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I think a lot of it 
relies on how their economies are intertwined, what the travel patterns may look like, you know, where people come and go, and just a recognition. You know, I, I think about I live in Washington, D.C. You think about the region with D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. You know, there are people who travel through all three jurisdictions just in the daily course of a normal workday. Maybe not right yeah. now. We're all working from home. But for those three, you know, those three jurisdictions um, have to coordinate with each other and have obviously been coordinating with each other um, when you're thinking about responding to something like this. Tim, we're really interested in bolstering the relationship between the CPOs and the governors even before COVID. CPOs are the experts in contracting, procurement, and they want to provide any assistance that they can to the governors of their states. Um, So during the pandemic and even afterwards, what kind of information do your governors see as helpful resources to help advance their their missions? Across, sort of regardless of the function of government, one of the goals is always to make sure that government's delivering its services to the citizens as effectively and efficiently as possible. And we know to deliver those services, procurement is a huge piece of that. So I think Mm -hmm. as the experts in the uh, effective and cost-efficient procurement of whether it be products or services on behalf of the state, that knowledge is really critical to meeting the overall goal of improving citizen services. I think in the midst of a crisis like we're facing now, in the midst of challenging economic environment like we are also facing now and likely will face for at least some foreseeable future, um, mm-hmm. there's going to be a great deal of need and reliance to on the individuals who understand how to effectively procure um, equipment, but I, I think it has to go beyond just equipment, but into services as well, um, because we have a whole ho- new host of needs that I don't think we were anticipating uh, needing to think about six months ago, right? Pre pre COVID, pre pandemic, right. right. You know, our CPOs and their staff in the Central Procurement Office are stewards of taxpayer dollars, and we're looking at data and what kind of data we can we can collect and disseminate. F- from COVID and from the pandemic um, and looking to share that data in terms of spend or number of items, quantity, where they're being distributed to. And, you know, we're just looking for different resources that we already have or that we can get pretty quickly and easily and to partner with the governors to, to advance those missions. Yeah, I I think that, you know, data-based decision-making has been something that we've talked a lot about in the public policy community for a number of years, but I think we shouldn't think, that it's somehow just limited to the sort of use of evidence in public policy. If why wouldn't we want to have better and improved data to help to guide our purchasing decisions? Right, that's something that we often point to the private sector as being leaders in. But it seems right. to me where the public sector could also demonstrate some real leadership, and that's a, a opportunity for cooperation between our two members. Yeah, it's that information, that knowledge is just as valuable as the the PPE is right now. Uh, what role can the CPO from each state play in assisting governors? Sure, I, I think there's a couple things. So one, you know, I think it was Olivia mentioned the steward of taxpayer dollars, right? So really underlining mm-hmm. that function that they're here to protect taxpayer dollars and to use them most efficiently and most effectively. So I think that's one. Two, in some cases, I think there's probably some need to demystify uh, government procurement, right? What is what is the art of the possible? I think a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. I think back to the days that I worked on cybersecurity issues, there was always questions around how hard it is to procure either cybersecurity services or technology equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But in the course of a crisis, you know, being having the deep knowledge of the procurement process and being able to say, what can we do? What can we not do? Um, what do we need legislative concurrence for? What's the definition of an emergency? Really being able to be fast and available with those answers as this crisis evolves, I think will be really important. And then the third piece would be, you know, going back to that needle in a haystack idea that we talked about, you know, as procurement experts, um, 
where are the unique sources of whatever the item we need to procure, right? So if everybody is looking abroad for PPE, you know, is there a back, is there sort of a solution in your own backyard? Is there somebody who can convert their factory? Is there, you know, we saw early on, and I think it was in California where there were a number of large companies that had to have stockpiles of PPEs going back to the wildfires. So I think having that nimbleness to identify um, new and different sources for equipment. So whether that is sort of PPE or whatever is required in the next phase of this or in subsequent activities. Those are, those are sort of the three things that I would think about. We are anticipating a heavy financial impact from COVID-19 that we're going to have on the states in the next one to two years. How are the governors planning for this impact and how might this affect state budgets? Yeah, that's such an, uh, such a critically important question. And I would start off by just saying, I think, you know, we're still in the very early stages of knowing exactly what the financial impact is going to be, what the economic impact. I mean, we've seen obviously just a tremendous increase in the unemployed. Uh, we've saw, see, saw, you know, really um, terrible numbers for GDP growth for the last yeah. quarter. But, you know, the folks that we talked to, you know, different economists we talked to have said there really isn't a model for this crisis. So it kind of goes back to it's so hard to project what the medium and long-term consequences are. So I think what we're in the phase now of still trying to gather information, trying to look back and see what happened as a result of the 2008-2009 financial crisis in the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the closest analogous recession we can look to. What was the impact then on state budgets? How did governors respond? Um, what did they do in order to balance their state budgets? You know, as your listeners are probably probably aware, states have to balance their budget every year, right? So mm -hmm. they've got to make governors and state legislators have got to make the hard decision uh, of looking at what's coming in and what's got to go out, and those two have got to add up in a way um, that you know the federal government doesn't have to. Um, so again, I think we're still in the early stages, but it's it's clear that there's going to be a significant economic and financial toll. I think the question is just um, how long does it last? Um, what does recovery yeah. look like? And a lot of that is going to come down to, you know, you sort of have to address the public health crisis before you can address, before you can fully address the economic crisis. And it, we're still relatively early on um, in both of them. But again, something that we're tracking actively, I know our members are concerned about, and uh, I think it's going to be one of the dominant questions we'll all be talking about in the coming months, if not years. Absolutely. I know that for our members, you've heard anywhere from 4% to 50% budget cuts, which is incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, each state is so different, right? Each state's economy is is somewhat fundamental, is somewhat different on its fundamentals, what its industrial makeup is. So each state will feel it in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's safe to say that every state will feel it in some way. So let's talk a little bit about the events. Uh, due to travel bans, uh, many of the, of the events have been canceled. What is NGA doing to continue providing education and networking opportunities without that face-to-face -face interaction? Yeah, such a good question. Um, I think like everybody else who plans and executes a number of events over the course of a year, we're quickly uh, having to turn around and think about what virtual programming looks like. You know, we're all quickly becoming Zoom experts, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. not, to pick, not to pick Zoom, right? Pick whatever platform you're using, we're all quickly learning how to use it. So that's what we're doing. Um, we're taking a look at any event that we had planned over the next couple months and taking a look at, you know, whether it makes sense to move it virtual. And, you know, when you move something virtual, you often have to change the format. So nobody wants to sit on a virtual meeting for eight hours. So right. how do you pick an eight hour virtual meeting and do you stretch that out over a couple of days? Um, do you do that, you know, a series of events over the course of a week? 
Um, so we're looking at, we're definitely taking a look at that. Obviously we're looking at some things and seeing, you know, do we just, do we postpone them for a little while and see um, whether the actual interaction would really benefit from being in person and the nature mm-hmm. of the work means that we could sort of change the work plan and do it in person in a year or six months. But obviously the timeline's really in flux. So I'd say in general, we're thinking about virtual. Um, one of the challenges we face is we work with, obviously with state officials across the whole country. And so one thing I, I have to admit, I didn't think about initially when we started moving to virtual is the time zone problem. Yeah. And so how do you schedule a coffee break or a lunch? <laughs> you know, when do you start the meeting? Right. Um, having to put all three or more, depending on you know if we've got um, Hawaii or some of the Pacific territories or Alaska in the meeting, having to put all the time zones. I got an agenda for a virtual meeting last week and it had you know like four different times for every session in each time zone. Right. Um, and also we sort of have to make sure we start anything we do later in the day. You know, we can't really do a virtual meeting that kicks off at eight o'clock in the morning unless we only have um, Eastern time zone states. So that's right. been one of the things having to work through. But, you know, the, the last thing I'll say in this and, you know, would certainly be eager to hear anybody's thoughts, um, either of you or any of the listeners, is how do you manage the networking aspect of it? Because, you know, it feels like the last thing anybody wants to do at the end of a, a Zoom meeting or a virtual meeting is then kind of go to a virtual networking event. And uh, yeah. Right. But, but, you know, we've said to our team, let's be creative because we know that one of the big benefits of the meetings that we host is that informal exchange of information, right? They're certainly putting the experts up on the panel, having the speaker, that's all valuable and people get a lot out of it. But we also know you get a lot out of who you bump into in the back of the ballroom or who you have dinner with or who you end up sitting with at breakfast. Yeah. yeah. How do we rep- rep- replicating those? I think it's going to be the hardest part, but we certainly want to think creatively about it. I think you have, just have to encourage your members. And, you know, let them know that this is, this is kind of the new normal, right? Don't just um, play it off. Yeah. And I think just all acknowledging that it's going to be different, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody kind of going into the event, whether it's a big, huge conference or whether it's a three-person conversation, Mm -hmm. it's going to be different than if the three of us were sitting in a conference room having this call, right? The dynamics are Mm -hmm. going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And we all know that, right? The listeners know that, the meeting participants know that, the meeting planners know that. So just going in with that, that sort of level set. And the other thing is, and this applies to every aspect of this current situation we're in, you just have to be flexible. Right. Yeah. We have to yeah. be flexible. We got to know that if you're in a virtual meeting and everybody's teleworking, somebody may duck out of the virtual meeting for a half an hour because they've got to mm-hmm. walk the dog or they've got to feed their kid or they've got to attend to something else because, you know, life. the line between work and life is <laughs> yeah. completely become even more blurred than it was before this. So, yeah, I know engagement's the hard part there. You can put on the virtual conference all day long or in the short microburst or whatever you think is appropriate. But the engagement part is hard because we've all been guilty of working on something else or sending an email during a conference call. So I think (laughs) part of that engagement that we've been encouraging our staff to do is to turn on your camera, you know, everyone may be sitting in their, their hoodie and, you know, comfortable at home. But, um, I think that this virtual face-to-face is helpful too, for that engagement factor. So Tim, before we let you go, you have any advice for our listeners? Sure. I, I guess I would just say one thing, and that's that goes back to what I said earlier. The, the road out of this crisis, um, this pandemic, in my mind, is, is public-private partnership. It's cooperation and partnership writ large. So to anybody listening, you know, if you've got a good idea, if you've got a solution to the problems that we face, um, you know, Get in touch, get in touch with NASPO, get in touch with NGA, talk to your local government, talk to your state government. Um, you know, all comers are needed. If you've got a good idea, make sure, don't be embarrassed to share it. That's my piece of advice. That's great. 
Excellent. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll make sure that we um, put your contact info or NGA contact info in the bio for this, for this episode. Olivia Hook Fry is the NASPO Director of Membership and Partnerships. And Tim Blute is the Director of NGA's Center for Best Practices. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you both. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate the partnership. Looks like there are several associations adapting to the current crisis, crises. Not only are we adapting, but we're working together to communicate, to aggregate data and knowledge. As Olivia said, these partnerships are extremely important. Whether they are between NASPO and NGA or public-private partnership, it's going to be important to work in lockstep. Make sure that the whole job gets done, not just pieces of any one job. As Tim said, regardless of the function of government, one of the goals, primary goals, is to always make sure the government is delivering its services to its citizens effectively and efficiently as possible. What do you think? Let us know. Email us with your questions, comments, answers, if you have them, at podcastnaspo.org. I'd like to thank my co-host, Olivia Hook Fry. If you have any questions about NASPO COVID-19 resources, you can check out naspo.org forward slash COVID-19-resources or email membership at naspo.org. Make sure to put all that information in the bio for you. Also, thanks again to the 2020 NASPO president, George Shutter, for taking time to record that message. Well, that does it for the Pulse today. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get them listenings. You do not want to be the only person who didn't listen to The Pulse. Make sure check out The Pulse blog at pulse.naspo.org and read some of the insightful articles written by our very own NASPO staff. I'm Kevin Miner. Until next time. Mm-hmm.